Please be seated. Okay, so we're doing the seventh commandment, as most of you know. I just said it in my prayer. But we're therefore kind of interesting. The seventh commandment is question 70 in the shorter catechism. So as we're working through the catechism, we'll uh, review that. Question 70 is a question that introduces the seventh commandment to us simply by asking what it is. And then we'll also look at question 71 and 72 today. So let's, with review, let, I will ask the question and then we'll answer it together in unison. Question 70, which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. So last week when we looked at this introductory question, we saw that adultery in a technical sense occurs when a married person has sexual relations with someone who is not their spouse. Both they and the person who has sex with them commit adultery in such cases. But adultery should not be, should be seen also in a broader sense. When we look at the commandments, we don't look at them just in the letter of what they specifically talk about, but we look at them in all that they pertain to. The scriptures teach us to do that all the way through. This is a summary of God's law. They're summary statements. And so when we do that, we see that um, in the broader sense that adultery can be described as any misuse of sexual intimacy, such as sex outside of marriage. We saw that God appointed sexual intimacy exclusively for marriage and that marriage is a covenant in which a man and a woman promise to be companions to one another as a husband and a wife. Adultery takes sexual relations outside of proper marriage and occurs, as we saw, we drew the the definition of it from Leviticus, whenever nakedness is uncovered. That's when we go across, when we cross the line. It could be in pornography, looking at nakedness. That is uncovering nakedness. That is a violation of the command. It could be physical contact, touching in uh, a sexual way, uh, either one of those. The scriptures condemn adultery and fornication and urge us to flee from them. Questions 71 and 72 in the catechism state this for us. So let's confess these questions also together before the Lord. But before we do, you'll find the word chastity and the word unchaste in these two questions. Chastity needs to be explained because this word has been cut out from our everyday speech and vocabulary, not because it's been replaced by some other word that's better but because the very concept of chastity is not popular. So we've, we don't talk about it, so people hardly know, what is chastity? That sounds like kind of an old word. Well, it is an old word because we don't even talk about it. When the word is heard, it's often thought of in a negative way. It's something that's sort of prudish and, and, and sort of opposed to any kind of ardent, sexual expression, or that sort of thing. But what it actually is, what it actually refers to is sexual purity and beauty. It is calling for a pure and holy use of sexual expression and a rejection of the polluted swamp of sexual perversion. Think of it as sex without pollution. Now, if we're going to think about that, if you heard of someone that was um, contending or, or, or trying to deal with the problem of polluted rivers and lakes that had gotten, maybe they had factories that were dumping all kinds of garbage and there was oil floating on top and smelly things and fish were all dying and that kind of thing. Would you say, oh, that person is against beautiful lakes and rivers? No, you would say that there are four beautiful lakes and rivers. Why? Because they don't want polluted lakes and rivers. They want pure rivers and lakes. And so if with sexual relations, if you're for 
beautiful, pure sexual relations, then you are for sexual relations. You're not against them. Because you don't like polluted ones doesn't make you to be contrary to sexual expression. So chastity should draw a picture of sexual relations to us reserved exclusively for the one that you have publicly committed to as a husband and wife for life. As I mentioned last week, the way the ungodly pursues sexual pleasure reduces it to a mere quest for physical stimulation that reduces other people to mere objects of your pleasure. In fact, they might as well be a machine or something if they can give you the same kind of stimulation. So let's confess the answers to these questions in unison. Question 71, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. What is, question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So you'll notice that in question 71, it speaks of the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity. Today, I want you to think about what the preservation of chastity means, especially in marriage. If I am trying to be chaste, that is to express sexual love in a pure way only in marriage, then that means that I ought to do all that I can to maintain genuine love in marriage. I ought to be promoting that. I ought to recognize that God is the one who joins a man and a woman together, joins me to a spouse, and I ought to do all I can to keep together what God has officially joined together. As Jesus says, let no one separate what God has joined together. That means that I should encourage others who are married to love their spouses and to do those things that will bring them together instead of those things that will tear them apart and create distance. So the subject today is actually divorce, which is the tearing apart of a man and woman that God has joined together in marriage. We're going to look at some of the technicalities about this subject, but we're also going to get to the very heart of the matter and see that we're all guilty to various degrees of tearing apart what God has joined together. For our scripture reading, I have chosen a couple of passages where Jesus speaks about divorce. Both of them are from Matthew. So the first one is from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. We looked at that one last week as well. And uh, I'll, I'll read that one first. So Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read to you. It's God's word. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. 
And there we'll end the first reading from the New Testament from Matthew 19. Our second reading is from Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where Jesus has just been explaining how it is sinful not only to actually commit adultery, but even to lust or have sexual desires for one who is not your spouse. Lust is a way of eroding your relationship with your spouse. Even if you're not married, it's a way of eroding your future sexual relationships with a spouse that you might have in the future. Thus, Jesus goes from speaking about inappropriate lust to divorce. You see, it's a natural progression. Inappropriate lust, then divorce. Listen carefully to God's word, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. One of the things that stands out about these passages is the way Jesus speaks right to the heart of the matter. He knew his Jewish hearers who professed to know God. He knew that they were masters at finding ways to dodge the real intention of God's commandments. They knew very well that the scriptures said they were not to commit adultery. That was very plain for anyone to see. Adultery is actually uniformly condemned in scripture and generally recognized as something that is wrong in every society. Even societies that we might call uncivilized. We find marriage in places that we would maybe not expect it, in cultures that have been isolated for, for many generations. But the people in Jesus' day had gotten into all sorts of discussions and debates about when it was appropriate to divorce your wife. The Jews had in Jesus' day. It should be noted that men did not allow the same freedom to the women to divorce as they did to themselves. The problem with this was not that they restricted women from easy divorce, but rather that they allowed each other as men to get an easy divorce. At least many of them did. A lot of times the women in that day would not have wanted to get divorced anyway. The side that permitted easy divorce was represented by Rabbi Hillel. He latched on to the passage in Deuteronomy 24 that we read earlier in where Moses says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus mentions this passage in both Matthew 19 and in Matthew 5. You can see it in verse 31 if you still have Matthew 5 open. Hillel and those who followed him took this verse To mean that all you have to do if you get tired of your wife is write her a certificate of divorce. And then it's all good. The Lord through Moses appointed the certificate as a a protection for women so that a husband could not just dismiss her in a fit of anger or a time of depression or something like that. He had to write out her certificate and he had to get a couple of witnesses to sign that certificate all to prevent him from taking rash action. It was a slow down, buddy. Think about what you're doing here. The witnesses also had to agree that there were legitimate grounds for the man to divorce his wife. The requirement for legitimate grounds is brought out in Deuteronomy 24.1, but it's something that needs to be interpreted, where it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and it goes on. But what constituted legitimate grounds? What did Moses mean when he said that the man finds some uncleanness in her that keeps her from having favor in his eyes? Well, that's where the debate raged among the Jews. And this is the issue that they bring to Jesus, testing him in Matthew 19. Hillel 
had taught that a husband could use, the, to use the Pharisees' words in Matthew 19.3, divorce his wife for just any reason, any reason whatever. He argued that a husband could be said to have found some uncleanness in his wife if she displeased him in any way. For example, if she burned his supper or if she oversalted it, he could draw up a bill of divorce. As long as he gets a bill of divorce, gets his friends to sign it, and that's good. Rabbi Akaba even said that he could divorce her simply because someone more attractive came along. Say, oh, you don't find favor in my life, in my eyes anymore because I found someone more attractive than you. We might say to their credit, however, that the Jews did not have many divorces because they didn't. Not nearly as many as we have. Not nearly, not even close as many as we have. But it's hard to commend them because many of the men used this loose interpretation that we're talking about of, uh, uh, of Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 24 to, uh, to threaten their wives. In other words, if you do that again, I'm going to write you a bill of divorce. You see, that was a terrible use of it. And, and, and in that day, when a divorced, woman, a divorced woman would find it difficult to provide for herself, and she might find it difficult to find another husband, too, if she had already been married and was divorced. So this is a very wicked thing for them to do, to have this easy divorce thing and hold it over their wife's head all the time. But of course, there were those among the Jews who held to a more legitimate understanding of God's law. The school of Rabbi Shammai argued that the words some uncleanness obviously referred to sexual immorality. They taught that a man could not write up a bill of divorce, nor should any man sign it, unless the man's wife had committed adultery. In both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus teaches that Shammai was correct. Jesus declares that when God instituted marriage, he appointed that the man and his wife become one flesh, it was never God's intention for them to be broken apart. It was to be a permanent relationship. And in Matthew 5.32, he says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Now, of course, Jesus does not mean that the husband forces his wife to go with another man at that point, but rather that he puts her in a place where she is tempted to do so, he has wrongly divorced her, and now she's going to want to go and find another relationship with another husband. And her first husband bears the responsibility for not protecting his wife's chastity by divorcing her when he didn't have grounds for divorce. Jesus says sexual immorality is the grounds. And what's more, if the divorcing husband marries another woman, he also becomes guilty of committing adultery himself. So not only does he cause his wife to commit adultery, as Jesus says in the one passage, but he also commits adultery himself. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So the one that marries the woman that was unjustly put away. God's intention in allowing divorce was to regulate divorce in a fallen world where people do things like committing adultery. He did it, he, he said, because of the hardness of your heart, because these kind of things are going to go on. So he did it to provide an orderly way for the innocent party to officially terminate the marriage if necessary. Of course, the death penalty could have been enacted for adultery, but it was not very often done. Often the law is not, the penalty is not carried out. The law is, the punishments are not carried out to their full extent. And this law gave the man the ability then to put his adulterous wife away privately rather than initiating her public execution by stoning. But the point is that every one of us should be endeavoring to keep together those men and women that God has joined together in marriage our own marriage and that of other people. We're to be pro-marriage in general, pro-fidelity in marriage, maybe I should say. You can see that our society is implicated by what Jesus says here. We too have become guilty of separating what God has joined together. 
not only as individuals, but also the way we handle divorce as a society. We have made marriage almost completely meaningless by allowing for divorce, even when there is nothing more than that the couple want it, that they're tired of each other and they want to move on to another pasture. We look upon the vows as having no weight and at marriage as being something that two people create and that has nothing to do with God. We don't see it as a union that God establishes when they make their vows and marry, but is something that they have done themselves. Certainly, this is true with a civil magistrate with our very corrupt legal system, where the intention of all the legal hoops to jump through and getting a divorce are not even designed to, pre- to prevent divorce at all. It used to be, even in my lifetime, when I was little, that sometimes judges would tell someone who was coming, filing for divorce, he would say, go back and love your wife. You don't have any, any grounds for getting a divorce here. And order them to go back and live it out. Uh, but in our society today, we have all these things to jump, th- legal hoops to jump through, but they have nothing to do with preventing divorce. No efforts are made to encourage the couples to remain together along the way, except that it's too much trouble to bother with doing all this paperwork. They're never forbidden to divorce because they have no legitimate reason. That was the original intention of having divorce proceedings, to require witnesses that would verify that there were legal grounds to proceed. But now it seems that corrupt leaders in law have allowed divorce to become so complicated that it's primarily a way of making lawyers rich. So somebody's getting a divorce and there's so much legal things to do that they can make a lot of money in, in processing that divorce. It does nothing to preserve marriages. It's, it's really gone awry. This has caused immeasurable harm because as we saw last week, when marriage breaks down in society, the fundamental relationship in society, the whole society is corrupted by that. Sexual immorality becomes commonplace so that the unique purpose of sex in marriage is lost. Sex is more and more reduced to physical gratification, as we saw last week. Women become mere objects of men's passion, and the sex trade flourishes and grows. Sodomy and child abuse and all sorts of other vile practices emerge in such a society. There are unwanted pregnancies that produce unwanted children and turn people into selfish monsters who rip those children out of the mother's womb. The whole fabric of society breaks down. Life is devalued. Commitments mean nothing. Loyalty is lost. Children grow up in broken homes. Poverty increases, sexually transmitted diseases spread, unhappiness abounds, the list goes on and on and on and on because of a society that doesn't care about keeping together what God has joined together. Sadly, even the church in our day has contributed to the problem of allowing easy divorce. It is the duty of the church to bring God's word to bear on these matters especially on those who are under our care. We are not to tolerate illegitimate divorce in our membership. Persons who separate must be called to repent and to be reconciled. If one or both refuse, the one refusing must not be permitted to remain in the church in good standing. They must be declared to be unbelievers if they will not repent. By following the world in this matter, we have ceased to provide a moral compass for our community and to be salt and light that we're called to be. And we have, through our own fault, lost the respect of our community. We say, oh, they don't respect us anymore. No wonder. We who are supposed to be a shining example of godliness with marriages that are a shining example of the beautiful relationship that Christ has with his church appear to be no different than the world. How ought the church then to handle cases of divorce? This is the next thing I want to consider with you today. The first thing is that we should not allow divorce between church members except in the case of sexual immorality. And then actually only rarely. 
as a church, we are to work together to oppose divorces that are not biblical. If any of you know about any of your fellow church members who are talking of such a thing, it's your duty to confront them and to call them to repentance about it. Call them to repentance, urge them to get help for their marriage, to forgive each other for wrongs, to put away their bitter, excuse me, to put away their bitterness and to work out their problems. As a pastor, I wish that this was done earlier on as we see someone struggling in a marriage that we take the time to talk to them about it and seek to help them with it. If the couple persists in divorcing, then what do you need to do then? You need to follow what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Maybe you would want to turn there. It's right over next to Matthew 19 that we read earlier. After going to them on your own, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, and trying to persuade them to repent, to convince them of their wrong, you're to take one or two others with you and try to convince them together, to show them how God's word prohibits what they're doing, and that in following the Lord, that they shouldn't take these steps. And if either one of them still refuses to hear, to hear means so that you repent, not just to say, oh yeah, I heard your words, but to hear and respond to the word, then you're to tell it to the church, as verse 17 says. Understand that the word church here is the word ecclesia, the common word that we use for church or assembly. It means the assembly. And here it means the assembly of the elders, not the entire congregation. How do we know that? We know this because the elders were given this responsibility by God in the Old Testament to put people out of the synagogue, the local assembly, or to receive people in when Gentiles came and wanted to become a part and they were circumcised and so on. And uh, this is what was practiced in the Jewish assembly of the synagogue in Jesus' day. You remember that they made an unjust ruling that anyone who, uh, who believed in Jesus, who was following Jesus, should be put out of the synagogue. Who did that? The elders would put them out. He is referring then, Jesus is referring to something that they were all familiar with. So we don't have to guess and say, oh, is he talking about the whole church or is he talking about the elders? Sometimes people just assume it's the whole church because they say, oh, it says church. But the elders were also called the ecclesia. And if either the husband or wife then refuses to hear the elders after every effort has been made to convince them, whichever one of them is refusing to hear, or both of them, if that's the case, is to be is to be at last put out of the church, no longer regarded as a Christian. Jesus says that they are to be regarded, I like the way the old version says it, as a heathen and a tax collector. The heathen represents those who do not believe the truth. Unbelievers, some of the modern versions say. The tax collector represents persons who refuse to repent of their sins. So one is put out for doctrinal um, deficiency. The other one is put out because of, or they're not put out, but they're never received in because they don't believe. And the other one is removed because of moral um, corruption. Jesus says that the elders, the two or three who are joined together in his name, have the authority to bind on earth those who refuse to repent and to loose those who do repent, to loose them from their sins. In binding them, the elders declare that these persons are not forgiven because they refuse to repent. They are thereby excluded from the fellowship of the church, regarded as a tax collector and an unbeliever. In loosing them, the elders declare that those who repent and profess faith in Jesus are forgiven. They are loosed from their sins and able to remain in the fellowship of the church. Jesus says that elders have the authority of heaven backing them when they do this. Technically, the way that the grammar is, it says that um, whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's a, uh, a certain grammatical instruction there. So it's saying that you're basically echoing what heaven has decreed, and it carries, therefore, the authority of heaven when the elders remove people on biblical grounds or when they proclaim forgiveness of those who have repented. Now, there are a couple ways that this can play out. First, the husband and wife may both insist on going through with divorce. When that happens, then both of them are to be removed from the church and regarded as unbelievers. 
They are no longer to be considered part of the body of Christ because they have departed from the Lord by breaking the covenant that they made before him when they married. Not only breaking it, but also refusing to repent and come back to their, the calling that they have in that covenant as a husband or wife. Second, it can be the case that one of them wants to maintain the marriage, but the other does not. When that happens, the one who refuses is the one who must be, if he or she persists in his or her rebellion, put out of the church. The believer is then put into a situation that Paul describes, or finds themselves in a situation, maybe I should say, that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, where you're with an unbeliever who refuses to live in marriage with a believer. But what is the believer to do in such a situation? Is the believer free to remarry or must he or she remain unmarried? So in other words, the other person is an unbeliever. Now, what, what do you do with the person that's left? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 and see what it says. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15. It says this very thing, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, that's very clear legal language that's used there. The words let him depart, first of all, are actually a command. In Greek, there's a third person kind of a command. We don't have that in English. We have our commands in the second person. You say, you go, you know, go or come or whatever. That's an imperative. But in Greek, it's like let him go. <laughs> it's, it's a command in the third person. We, we can hardly think that way. But you let them go. You are no longer bound to them because they have departed from the marriage. When verse 15 says that a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, it means that they're not bound to the marriage. Vows that, that to that person anymore because the other person has broken and left that marriage. They are free, therefore, to remarry because the other person has broken the bond of marriage. This is clear from looking at how the word bound is used in verse 27, where Paul asks in a different situation, are you bound to a wife? And again in verse 39, where he says that a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but that when he dies, she is at liberty to marry again. So when Paul uses the same word and says that the believer is not under bondage to the marriage, not under bondage in such cases, then it means that they are free to remarry. But what if the believer, but what is a believer to do if the unbeliever just leaves but doesn't want to get a divorce? You know, maybe they don't really care about being official. Or perhaps they don't want to bother with going through all the paperwork and the expense of a divorce. Well, it's just, I'm just going to move on. I'll go shack up with some. I don't care about the marriage vows. I've run into this situation in several on several occasions in our day. What's a believer to do then? Okay, you're married. Your spouse leaves. You go out. What, what do you, they say, oh, I don't want to get a divorce. I'm not going to divorce you. What do you do? May the believer initiate the divorce? Or do they have to remain in bondage until the unbeliever initiates it? Well, our session has ruled that it is indeed the believer's responsibility to initiate the divorce in such cases. The unbeliever has broken up the marriage by refusing to live in it anymore. The believer has a duty to make the breakup official. Once that is completed, the believer is free to marry another, but of course only in the Lord. And I should add that in the case where the unbeliever is one who used to be a professing Christian, then the believer is to wait until the church has made every effort to bring the apostatizing individual to repentance and has at last reached the step where they have put them out of the church, declaring them to be an unbeliever. You don't just run off to get the divorce as soon as they leave. You try to fix things first. But of course, things can be very complicated, and they often are. There's often very difficult situations to deal with, and it's hard to know what to do sometimes. What if it is a believing husband or what if it is a believing husband or wife who commits adultery? Jesus says that if your spouse commits adultery, it's a legitimate reason to divorce him or her. So if you do divorce, he says, you do not commit adultery in that case if you marry another because your spouse 
has already broken up the marriage by their adultery. But does this mean that the innocent party should immediately file for divorce? As soon as their spouse has committed adultery, I'm done with this marriage. No, it doesn't mean that. It is, a law, it is lawful to divorce, but what is lawful is not the same as what honors God the most or what is best to do either. Before divorcing, efforts should be made to bring the adulterous spouse, okay, this is a professing believer who commits adultery, to bring them to repentance. If they refuse to repent, then it's definitely a reason to divorce. And they're going to continue living in adultery. They aren't interested in fig- But it is best to wait again until what? Until the elders have addressed that person who have called them to repentance. The church has prayed for them. They've refused to repent. And then they're eventually removed from the church. You don't do it in a hasty way. But if they do repent, then that means definitely you're to forgive them. It doesn't mean that you have to necessarily stay in the marriage. Ordinarily, though, it means that you will continue to live in the marriage with them with gladness. It also means that you will sincerely submit to the elders as they seek to help you rebuild your relationship. In doing this, you set an example of patience and forgiveness and love. You will grow as you work through these things. And no doubt you will learn of ways that you may have contributed to the problems that were in your marriage and with God's help can change. But what if there is no adultery? Okay, here, see things get messy. What if, for example, a husband is abusing his wife? What if he's beating her up? Something like that. Does she have to stay with him and get beat up every day? Is that, is that what God requires her? Because it wasn't sexual immorality. What does it mean? No, she may very well need to leave the home. And she may even need to call the police if she is threatened and in danger. And she should definitely get the church involved in trying to lead her husband to repentance. The church ought to protect her, and sometimes they ought to encourage her to report the matter to the civil authorities as well. If the husband in such cases refuses to repent, the church will have to put him out as an unbeliever. And after that process is complete, the husband is, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, counted as an unbeliever who is unwilling to live in the marriage. Even if he wants his wife to live with him in the house, if he is beating her up, he's not willing to live with her in marriage. Now, some will disagree and say that that is too loose of interpretation. But that's the position that we have talked about in the past on our session. And we had different members of our session then, but the uh, things that we have worked through in the past. A similar situation could occur if a spouse is committing a serious crime. If that spouse is a professing Christian, then again, he or she must be called to repentance first by you, then by you and others, then by the assembly of the elders. If that person refuses to hear, then he must be put out of the church and his crime will need to be reported to the civil authorities. If he does repent, then part of his repentance would be to turn himself in to the civil magistrate and to receive whatever punishment the courts impose on him with humble patience. But... If you are married to such a person, are you bound to live with them when they have committed, say, a capital, what the Bible would refer to as a capital offense? There is no hard and fast rule here. If the God's law pronounces that this person is deserving to die and the court's way of doing that is locking them up for the rest of their life, a believer should consult with the elders and the elders of a local church may need to refer even to the presbytery for a ruling to decide if that person is is free to divorce and remarry because this other person has committed a capital offense. As you can see, these situations can become very complicated because the civil magistrate doesn't do what it's supposed to do. The church doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Believers don't do it. There's sin involved. And when sin is involved, you have messes that are hard to deal with. It's important for the believer to work closely with the elders in the church and to follow their counsel. Rashness and hasty decisions should be avoided at all costs. Now, let's get to the heart of this whole matter. Let's get to the real heart of the matter about separating what God has joined together in marriage. 
Do not be like a Pharisee looking to see what the rules are so you can work around them. When they came to Jesus in Matthew 19, their question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? That was always their question. Is it lawful? That is not the question to ask. That's somebody looking for a loophole. The question to ask is, what is most pleasing to God in this matter? Yes, it is lawful is an important question that you want to know as a foundation. We've talked about that here. But more important is, what would please God the most? I don't have to do something. I'm not, it's not best for me to do something just because it's lawful. That's the question you ought to ask when God has forgiven your sins and brought you into his house forever, is what will please my master here? Not what do I have to do or what can I do? See, it's a, different, a whole different attitude. The goal for you in your marriage should be that you do all you can on your end to strengthen the bond that God has given you by marriage with your spouse. That's the bottom line. You're ever to be building that bond and making it stronger rather than tearing it down, tearing it apart, and making it weaker. Every action you take with respect to your marriage is going in one direction or the other, either strengthening what God has joined together or tearing apart what God has joined together. The harsh word is tearing it apart. The kind word is building it up. Failure to deal with a festering problem is eroding your marriage. Asking forgiveness and working through problems is repairing the damage. Making derogatory statements about your spouse to other people is destructive to your marriage bond. Honoring your spouse and hiding his or, faults, his or her faults strengthens the bond. Being cold and refusing to listen drives a wedge between the two of you. Being warm and affectionate and understanding brings you together. Selfishness regarding the marriage bed drives your spouse away. Giving yourself in the marriage bed draws you together. Neglecting prayer with and for each other is going to have bad consequences. God will unite you as you seek his face together. Selfish purchases and selfish demands and selfish use of your time is a way to separate yourself from your spouse. Honestly looking upon the interest of your husband or your wife is cementing together the bond that Christ has given you in marriage. Treating your spouse like an object by which you get things done separates you, but loving them as a fellow human being and working together with them draws you together. So the question, are you and your heart and your actions moving toward divorce or are you making that union stronger? That's the real question to ask yourself in marriage. And you cannot honestly answer it without seeing your need for Christ. Who can say, I have only done what joins me closer to my wife and not what divides us apart? If you understand Jesus' teaching on this subject, and he who says not to separate what God is joined together when he commands you not to do that, you will be poor in spirit, like the Beatitudes say. I'm unworthy. I've not measured up. You'll mourn over your sin, like the Beatitudes say. You will be meek, so that you'll be teachable and looking to the Lord for help and instruction. And you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll say, Lord, help me, because I'm not doing so well here. I need your help. I need to live in this way, so that I'm not separating myself from it. And, and on it goes with the Beatitudes. You'll be merciful because rather than looking at others with harshness, you'll be looking at them that God has been merciful to me and all my failings. I'll be merciful to others. You'll be a peacemaker. All the things that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes because you've done so many things to break apart your marriage and so few to strengthen it. You will see that you need his grace to help you and you will see that you need his sacrifice for the remission of your sins. 
You can't live before God's face without Christ. You can't really deal with these things honestly without a Savior. But with Him, you can do all things. You can come and you can be honest with Him and you can grow and you can see things as they are and you can change. Now let me conclude by saying that the Lord Himself is your example in this whole matter of uh, not dividing what God joined together but but bring, keeping it together. Do you know the book of Hosea? I mentioned it in the other service. In this book, our gracious Lord demonstrates to his people that he has grounds for divorce. They have committed adultery and harlotry. His people had gone away from him. They had lusted after other gods. They had gone to other gods. They had worshiped them. They had served them. His people had committed very much spiritual adultery. But what does he do instead of divorcing them? He goes out of his way to restore things. That is the spirit that is to characterize you, to go out of your way, to bring together what is broken rather than dividing it further. He goes so far as to send his son to secure the reconciliation between himself and his church. Relationships in a fallen world require sacrifice. Yes, you have to sacrifice in order to bring together, to keep together what God has joined together. Jesus is the ultimate example of such sacrifice for his bride. To have a good marriage, you must have sacrifice. You show how well you understand his love and his mercy by the way you respond to your spouse when he or she does wrong or does things that displease you? Do you make every effort to restore the breach? Are you continually doing all you can to build your marriage? Even if you have a wife like Hosea, you can look at that as an opportunity to demonstrate in your own small way the love of Christ for you and for his church. You will demonstrate it in your own marriage only as well as you understand it. In other words, if you're focusing on Christ and what he has done in that spiritual marriage for us, it will transform the way you act in your marriage to the extent that you understand what he has done and you delight in what he's done, you will bring that into your own relationship. It may be that things have deteriorated to such an extent that you have grounds for divorce. And if you can't reconcile, that may be what you have to do. But do an attitude check way before it comes to that point. Men, is it your goal to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? And wives, are you treating your husbands the way that you're supposed to? The way that you would want, um, are you, I'm sorry, uh, wives, are you treating your husbands the way that you suppose that you would treat Christ if he were here? You're to treat, you're to treat your husband the way that you think Christ should be treated. You can't do this on your own, in your own strength. Come to Jesus. He will save you. He will give you grace. He will help you. Please stand and let's call upon his name and ask him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the instruction that you have given us in your word. It's so very clear, really, with our Lord Jesus bringing these very powerful words, talking about how it was in the beginning that you joined one man and one woman, that they would become one flesh, joined together, and that you said to not let anyone separate what God has joined together in that marriage covenant. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would take that to heart and we would realize that this is about God. It's not about two people and whether they like each other or something. It's about what you have instituted. And we pray, Lord, that we would honor marriage, that we would live in marriage, that we would delight in chastity, that we would want to see beautiful, holy sexual relationship in marriage rather than a polluted sexual relationships all over the place smeared across the, the whole land. Father, it's very sad to see the deterioration of our society. And a lot of it really revolves around this very thing of sexual immorality that, you know, it's brought about abortion and things like that and things that 
are very, very wicked and that cause us to devalue everyone's life. And we see, Lord, that, you know, we're, we're upset when we see things are going on today that our government is doing, but really we should have been upset way, way back a long time ago as we see so much, even with easy divorce. If that hadn't been done, then probably we wouldn't be on all this mess with abortion today. Father, we pray that as a church, that we would go to the root of the matter, that we wouldn't settle for something that is sort of a, a compromise of trying to slow down corruption or something, but that we would want to go right back to the root. And we see, Lord, that the root is when we do something like speaking an angry word to our spouse that was uncalled for, that we're dividing, we're, we're tearing down, we're, we're attacking marriage, we're attacking your institution when we do that. And Father, these are not little things. We think they're little because we see where it's gone. And they are little compared to where it's gone. But Father, before we live before your face and you are a holy God. And we see how, how wicked and how, how unfitting such things would be in glory. To have one speaking those kind of harsh words or doing those actions that are uncaring and Lord, there's so many things we, we, we can't even hardly begin, but, but we pray that you would have mercy on us, Lord, and that you would cause us to come to Jesus Christ as glad disciples who are very thankful that we can learn from him and that his way is, is gentle and meek and that he will accept us sinners that we are, cleanse us from our sins and help us to grow into a greater conformity to his will. Father, his will is not something that is ugly is something that's very, very beautiful. And we pray that we would learn to, to walk in his ways. Give us desire for it. Give us a hunger for it, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would be filled with righteousness, that you would transform us. Thank you so much, Lord, again, for your own example, for coming to us and restoring the breach that had occurred between us and you, that now through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united again and with a bond that will never be broken and that we're united to him as his wife and that he will keep us and he will preserve us and he will continue to do all that is necessary to maintain that bond of marriage between us and him. Please bless us, Lord, and help us to delight in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, the Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen.